You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. They're the outcast alley cats who had no one to care for them, the unloved ones. So that's what led me to prison ministry and especially to death row at San Quentin. Now, I don't want to romanticize these guys. And I say guys because I mostly work with men. Many of these men are severely damaged human beings. They've committed truly horrible crimes. They've tortured and hurt and murdered innocent people, and they've destroyed lives all around them. They're not nice people. They can be really annoying. They're like old alley cats. They can hurt you because they've been hurt. But here's the key. They're still God's children, and they always will be. So people always say, well, what's, what's death row like? Well, death row is a slice of hell on earth. When you walk into death row at San Quentin, you're taken aback by the size of the place. It's as big as a city block. It's huge. And there are four, five floors, are called tiers of cells. And the dirty windows let in this uh, yellow light that does nothing to brighten the space. It, it looks like a big warehouse. It's kind of like a giant Costco in purgatory. But just like Costco, they never have what you're looking for. You know, it's just, it's empty and lifeless. Um, and there's 50 cells on each, each tier. And all you see is this wall of, of cement and black metal doors. And it's loud. It's really loud. The, uh, the, the most annoying noise is at the, um, at the guard station. They have an intercom, and they're constantly making announcements, calling um, for other guards to go get the guys and take them to the showers or to lawyer visits or to whatever, medical uh, appointments. And it just it echoes in the building. It's really this harsh ringing uh, from the intercom. So it's very unpleasant uh, sensory. And then right outside the building are about a dozen large cages, about 12 feet by 12 feet, like dog kennels. And these are uh, where the men who are on walk-alone status go to recreate a couple hours a day. They get other cells for that. And they're on walk-alone status because they've proven themselves to be too dangerous to mix with other prisoners on death row. Because we often have stabbings and assaults that go on there because these men live in such close quarters and there's just this uh, and constant gossiping and verbal abuse going on. And so uh, every man there has told me over the years, the hardest part about being there is the loneliness. But because of the danger, each man has his own cell. And these cells are small. They're like from my shoulder to the end of my arm, five feet wide by 10 feet deep. And each man has an individual cell, and it's, it's, there's no windows. They're fronted by this heavy metal screen or mesh. Um, and it's padlocked shut most of the time. At the back of the cell, there's a stainless steel toilet with a sink, stainless steel t uh, sink on top of it. And there's also a small round metal stool bolted to the wall. And then in front of that is the bed. And what most of the guys do is they take their little thin mattresses off the bed and sleep on the floor. And then they use the platform of the bed as a desk or to, to draw on or for storage. The cells are dark and cramped. And all the guys there have these little TVs, these little flat screen TVs they can purchase. And that's their only window to the outside world. And the place smells horrible. It smells like a cafeteria of bathroom odors, locker room, and kitchen smells. It's very unpleasant. It's a horrible place. And far more men have died of old age or suicide or murdered there in the past 40 years 
than we've executed at, at San Quentin. We've executed 13 people since the 19, uh, 1980 or so. Um, but many, many more have died. And really, it's a, they, they die of despair. And their, their despair kind of lingers in the building long after the bodies are wheeled out. And because of that, there's a lot of ghosts in the building. Whenever people come to visit, they, 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 they notice and they describe how eerie it feels, how, how there's this almost palpable air of oppression that hangs over the place all the time. There are 720 men living on California's death row. It's, it's shocking how many. We don't actually kill them. We just sentence people to death. Um, and some of them have been there for over 40 years. We have a chapel on death row, and it's about the size of the stage. But imagine the stage completely covered by a cage, a black metal cage. And the men are allowed to come into, the, uh, into this cage about 10 at a time, and there are several benches bolted to the floor. And then I'm outside their cage in my own cage. It's about twice the size of an old phone booth. If any of you are old enough to remember phone booths, well, imagine about this big. I'm, I'm inside there, padlocked in. I have to padlock myself in by the regulations. And I'm wearing my black stab-proof, bulletproof vest that is required. And I'm, that makes me the only Jesuit in my community who celebrates Mass in Kevlar. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> um, and right above my head, there's this really harsh fluorescent light that's on all the time. But whenever I celebrate Mass there, which is three times a week, when I hold the Blessed Sacrament up at that point of the Mass, the light catches the host. And, I, and, and as I look past them, I'm always, it's always moving to see the expressions on the men's faces. No matter how rambunctious they were before that, they're, they're always very attentive at that point of the Mass. And I feel as I'm standing there, the light of Christ is shining from this, this blessed sacrament out to them. This is my body, which will be given up for you. We hear this at every Mass. Th these were the words of a, the last the words said at the last meal of a man who was about to be executed by the state. It's very strange how in prison, and especially death row, the words of the gospel take on a very different resonance. Jesus was an executed prisoner. Now, I know Jesus was innocent, and I know that these guys on death row have really done a lot to earn a spot on death row. It took real doing on their part, and their crimes were often just heinous brutal things that are the stuff of horror movies and nightmares. But I don't see murderers in front of me when I'm celebrating Mass or whenever I'm with them. I, just, I see human beings, these are men. And if Jesus was not given up for them, if he did not give up his body for them, then what difference would our religion really make? The fact that Christ's love reaches down into this very pit of hell is what gives my life purpose and meaning. And I'm often moved to tears at this point in the Mass because I feel I've been given such a gift to be able to stand there and witness to the power of Christ's love in this dark, dark place. And it's a sign of peace at every Mass. Uh, in the cage, there's a little, like a 14-inch slot. It was originally a male slot. I don't know how it ended up there. But we can put our hands through that and shake hands at the sign of peace. And I'm always surprised at how, how firmly the guys grasp my hand at that point, because there's so little human touch there. It's like they're reaching just to kind of touch a different reality, one where there is still human contact. Now, as far as I know, I, I work on the largest death row in the Western Hemisphere, possibly on the planet. And as strange as it sounds, I love the work. I've been doing this for 26 years. I've been 10 years at San Quentin. 
And I feel it's the best ministry I could ever have imagined. I wouldn't trade this experience for anything. And when I leave San Quentin, I, every day I drive over the Golden Gate Bridge. It's just breathtaking. And I kind of have to pinch myself. It's like, how did I ever get such a cool job? Uh, and, 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 and a work that's so charged with the power of the gospel. And you know, it's sad because there aren't a lot of priests or lay people for that matter banging on warden's door saying, I want to be a prison chaplain. I, I, I wish there were because there's such a shortage, especially of Catholic um, uh, prison chaplains. And so because I work there doesn't mean I approve of prisons either, by the way. Um, but if I were to choose to fight against the prisons and stand outside, I would never have the opportunity to go in there and minister to the prisoners and to the, to the guards or the correction officers, uh, which is also an important part of the ministry. I would never get to hold up the Blessed Sacrament as a sign of light and hope in this human hell. So what have I learned on death row? Well, if you think about it, nothing can be more vulnerable and helpless than being nailed naked to a cross. Jesus felt fear and anxiety that last night of his life. He was fully God, yes, but we often forget he was also fully human. And he was feeling overwhelmed with powerlessness and weakness that night. God the Father did not spare Jesus from the suffering, from the powerlessness, the vulnerability, the weakness. So why should we expect to be spared? One of the things I've learned, about working, learned from working in prison is that we are pretty much guaranteed in life that we're gonna experience powerlessness and weakness at various points of our lives. It's what we do with this powerlessness, it's what we do with this weakness, or what we let God do with it that makes all the difference in our spiritual growth. And working with prisoners reminds me that powerlessness and the ultimate surrender of freedom and even of our lives itself is something that none of us can avoid. We're all prisoners in one way or another. We're all prisoners of our fears, our painful memories, our addictions, our lack of ability to forgive and let go. And like prisoners, we're really powerless in the face of these things in our lives that imprison us and oppress us. And even if we don't feel like we're prisoners now, we will be someday if, we, if we're lucky enough to live long enough. We're gonna experience the loss of freedom that inevitably comes with aging. We're all prisoners to the inevitability of death as well. So in a very real way, we're all living on death row. We're all under a sentence of death. And you, never, you almost never hear it in our churches, but Jesus was, the was an executed prisoner. He spent his last night on death row. He spent his last night of his earthly life in prison. So did Peter, so did Paul, so did John the Baptist, James, Stephen, and almost all the early followers of Jesus spent their last night in prison and they were executed by the state. So the early church was no stranger at all to prisons. Just read the Acts of the Apostles. And of course, you all know contemporary uh, people, uh, Christians who were death row inmates as well. Edith Stein, Maximilian Kolbe, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Long, long list. So it's sad that our contemporary church is often a stranger to prisons. I think Pope Francis has been doing a great job leading us back to that through his words and his example to remembering men and women pr in prison. And, um, and Hebrews 13, chapter, uh, 13, verse 3, says, remember those in prison as if you yourself were in chains. And I, I, I remember that every Mass. Rem remember those in prison as if you yourself were in chains. Because guess what? 
We are. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Ash Wednesday. We're going to receive ashes on our heads for, to remind us that we're mortal, that we're from the dust, and to the dust we will return. Ash Wednesday reminds us that we need to surrender to the reality of our mortality because it's in this surrendering, it's in this weakness, owning the vulnerability and the nakedness that we have the opportunity to experience God's great grace in our lives. Some of the men I work with on death row have shown me glimpses of what this grace looks like, and I want to share two examples with you. Now, recently at Mass, I asked the guys on death row, I asked the guys, what were you thinking about this morning when you first woke up? I was kind of curious. And one man spoke up right away, and his answer really shocked me. Now, his name is Bill, and Bill's a guy who's been on death row for nearly 25 years. Now, he committed a truly terrible crime, and he's exhausted all his appeals. He's in the front of the line of people waiting to be executed. And fortunately, we have a moratorium right now on the death penalty in California. As long as Governor Newsom's in office, he said he will not sign any death warrants. But we're, if we were to resume executions, Bill would be at the front of the line to be strapped down to the gurney for lethal injection. The best case scenario for Bill is life in prison without parole. He will never get out of prison. He will never be physically free again in, in this life. So when I asked him what thoughts were in his head when he woke up, this is what he said to me. You know, Father, every day I wake up, I'm filled with gratitude. Wow. He went on to say that he felt this overwhelming gratitude to God because he was no longer the terrible person he was when he committed the murders that landed him on death row. He, felt, he feels gratitude because he knows he is loved and forgiven by God. So here's a man living in the highest security prison in all of California, in the biggest death row in the world, and yet in some ways he's one of the most free people I've met. Another man on death row, his name is Todd, arranged to have his wife murdered because he was having an affair with another woman. He wanted to get rid of his wife, so he had her killed. He was caught, sent to, uh, conde condemned to death, and sent to death row. Now, he freely admits what he did, He's, and he says he believes he deserves to be on death row, he deserves to be executed. But what's really remarkable about Todd is that two years ago, he took vows as a Benedictine oblate on death row. He had, he had uh, contacted a monastery in Pennsylvania, and over a couple of years had done basically a, no, a novitiate by correspondence with these, with these monks, and he became a monk himself. I received his vows on behalf of the monks in our prison chapel where they brought him in shackled and handcuffed. And Todd has devoted the rest of his monastic life now to praying for the souls of all the men and women who have been put to death on California's death row over the last 150 years or so. That's his vocation. So for me, he's such a wonderful witness to God's grace, even in such a hellish place as death row at San Quentin. Both these guys have found freedom. They found forgiveness despite the powerlessness and the vulnerability of being on death row. They can't change their situation, but their hearts were changed. So the question for us is, from what or from whom do you seek forgiveness? Who and what do you need to forgive in your own life? Are you willing to surrender yourself to God's mercy and forgiveness and finally forgive yourself or someone else in your life once and for all? You know, would that we could all learn to wake up each moment of our lives filled with gratitude to God for all the ways we've experienced his healing and forgiveness. Would that we could all be open 
to God's grace to become signs of light and healing in our world. I think that's what we're here for today, actually. This theme of crossing the divide, um, the outside world to the inside world of death row, for example. Well, at the heart of all our longing is the desire for God. It's our incarnational faith that reminds us that in Jesus, this union with God is inseparable from union and communion with one another, with other human beings, and with all of creation. So what matters is to be in communion with one another in Jesus Christ and in communion with the poor, the outcasts, the prisoners. We're all called by our baptism to be with Jesus, not only in his glory, but also in his powerlessness, his vulnerability, and his nakedness. We're all called to be compassionate to all those one-eyed Pete's of our world, the ones that no one else wants to see, who no one else wants to love. Death row exists because injustice exists. Death row exists because hatred, fear, racism, and indifference to human suffering exist. Death row exists because people choose to serve death, not life. But we know that because of Christ, love is stronger than death. Love and compassion are the only way we can defeat the power of a culture of death. The only thing we need to do is get involved and love those who no one else wants to love. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. So my story starts 30 years ago, this coming April 7th, 1990. It was the night before Palm Sunday, a Saturday night, and I was out with my younger sister, Nancy, who's 25 years old, and her husband, Richard, who's 29, and my parents. And we were there at an Italian restaurant on Clark Street in Chicago celebrating the happiest news imaginable. And that is that Nancy and Richard were going to have a baby. Nancy was three months pregnant. And this was a really wonderful thing because I'm one of three sisters. I have an older sister, I'm the middle child, and Nancy was the youngest. So even though Nancy was kind of the baby of our family, she was the first who was going to be a mom. So we were all just over the moon. This would have been the first grandchild from my mom and dad. It would have been my first little niece or nephew. And so we had pasta and we you know, talked and laughed and celebrated. I had bought a baby gift for Nancy. And we all hugged goodbye in the parking lot that night. Um, Nancy uh, hugged me and I could feel her warm body and smell the perfume she wore. And I said, I'll see you tomorrow because the next day after church, I was gonna go over and see her. And those are words that I never say anymore to anyone. It's almost felt like a foreboding of doom. I had no idea that that would be the last night I would ever see her alive on this earth. 
So my parents went home to their big house in the suburbs. I went back to my apartment in Chicago. I was working as a corporate attorney at a big law firm, lived by myself in this little studio apartment. Nancy and Richard went back to the townhouse they were living in in Winnetka, Illinois, one of the safest suburbs in the country. There hadn't been an unsolved murder in Winnetka in more than a century. And there had been only one murder at all in those hundred years, um, just a few years before, but it was solved instantly. So Nancy and Richard, the, the last thing they were expecting when they walked through their front door is to see this killer waiting for them. He had broken into their townhouse by using a glass cutter to cut the glass in a sliding glass door in the back because he knew that breaking the glass might have alerted the neighbors who would have called the police. So at the crime scene, you could see this glass silently stacked on the ground in back. He had a 357 Magnum revolver loaded with 38 caliber bullets. And when Nancy and Richard walked through the door from this warm family dinner where we were celebrating life, he pointed that gun at them. He ordered them into the basement. Nancy and Richard told them that she was pregnant. Richard begged him not to hurt his wife and because she was expecting. Um, the killer took them down into the basement. He put the gun to the back of Richard's head and fired once execution style. And I can't imagine what must have gone through Nancy's heart and mind at that point because she loved him. She wanted to have a big, happy family with him and raise them and grow old with him. And to see that dream shattered in that instant, that one gunshot, and then to see the gun turned on her. When that happened, she covered up her own head with her hands and kind of huddled in a corner. And so instead of shooting her in the head, he fired into her pregnant side and abdomen twice. which is the cruelest place imaginable because more than anything in the world, Nancy wanted to be a mom. She just wanted to have that baby and hold it in her arms. And then he fled. And the coroner's report estimated that she lived about 10 minutes after that. And the blood trails in the basement and the marks on her body showed what she did. First, she tried to call for help. And this is kind of unthinkable for us because we're also used to having a cell phone. There was no such thing as a cell phone in 1990. And so she didn't have any way to call for help from this basement. And so on the crime scene, you could see this metal shelf with this indentation marks in it. She'd been banging on the shelf with a tool, trying to make a noise that someone, anyone might hear and come and, and save them. And I, I imagine that at some point she must have felt the darkness closing in around her, her life kind of ebbing away, and, and realizing that she was dying and that no help was coming. So at that point, she dragged herself over to where Richard's body was. She had to pull herself along the floor by her elbows. You could see these scrapes and marks on her elbows and the trail of blood along the floor. And when she lay there next to him, in her last moments, she did this unimaginable thing. She dipped her finger in her own blood and drew the shape of a heart in the letter U. Love you. And then she died there beside him. And the next day, after church on Palm Sunday, my dad went over to the townhouse and rang the doorbell to see them. And when they didn't answer, he had this kind of foreboding of doom. 
And he used a key to open up the door to the townhouse. And he saw the broken glass and the sliding glass door and the light on in the basement. And when he went to the top of the stairs, there were Nancy and Richard lying there dead. And for six months, no one could figure out who had killed this happy young couple with no enemies, with everything in the world to live for. And one night I came home from work and my phone was ringing and I picked it up and it was a reporter for the CBS news station wanting to know my reaction to the arrest and my sister's murder. And I said, arrest? What, what arrest? And he said, there's a teenager in custody in the Winnetka police station. I hung up the phone. I went immediately to my parents' house in Winnetka um, and waited for news. It was a 16-year-old boy. It was a junior in high school, the same high school that Nancy had gone to, the same high school that my 16-year-old son attends right now. He had bragged to his friends about killing them. He showed a friend of his the 357 Magnum revolver that he had kept under his bed handcuffs like the ones he used on Richard. Um, and so the police went to the home with a warrant, found the gun, tested the ballistics, perfect match to the bullets in my sister's body. Um, they found this trophy notebook of press clippings that he had kept. We even learned that he had gone to Nancy and Richard's funeral. And so I went to the police station when we found this out with my parents and when we found out how they had died, because it wasn't even clear, their bodies were so covered with blood that it wasn't clear whether they had been bludgeoned to death or you know, struck down with an ax that had been in the basement, but that's when we learned that they had been shot to death. And when I learned that, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, I don't want to hate anyone. And everyone in the room kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And I don't even know where that thought came from except this, that this, until, until that moment, I lived a pretty privileged, safe, and happy life. But this was evil, such as I had never known. To look into my sister's beautiful, bright eyes, she was such a loving, bright, funny, sunny, generous person. And to pull a trigger, to snuff out the light in those eyes was so unimaginable to me. And I thought, this is casting a shadow of evil over us, and you have to respond to evil. You cannot not respond to evil. And I knew if that response was hatred and vengeance and bitterness, that there wouldn't be enough hate in the world to pay for the lives of my sister and her husband and my little niece or nephew. And so the first thing I did was to tell myself that whoever had done this, I was not going to hate him. So for six months, this crime went unsolved. I would walk down the streets of Chicago and thousands of people would be walking by and I'd think, is it him? Did he do it? Is it them? Like, do, are they coming back for the rest of my family? Do they hate us for some reason? Maybe it was such a mystery. Um, you know, and then came the arrest. So then the young man went to trial. And um, he took the stand and denied the crime. He showed no remorse. He took no responsibility. He tried to blame someone else. The jury didn't buy it. They found him guilty within a couple of hours based on his confession, the physical evidence, the details of the crime scene that no one else would have known. And when he was sentenced, he received the mandatory sentence that you got at the time for being a juvenile who committed that kind of a crime where you kill more than one person in the same incident. And that's life in prison without parole. 
And when he was taken away after the sentencing into the back, my mom turned to me and she said, we'll never see him again. And I was fine with that. I thought, you know, good. I had forgiven him, but I hadn't forgiven him directly. I'd never had any conversation with him. Um, and so the forgiveness that I did, you know, towards him was in my own mind and heart. But the forgiveness wasn't supposed to be about him or to include him or to cross that divide between me and him in any way. It was really for God and for Nancy and for me. The God part we know as Christians, we know we're told, you know, that we're, we ask God to forgive our sins as we forgive others. We know that the disciple Peter asked Jesus, you know, how many times do I have to forgive this brother of mine? Is seven times enough? And then I can just say, that's it. I'm done with you. We're through. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, meaning you have to keep on forgiving. I forgave for Nancy because, as I told you, she was this incredible force of love and life. And I thought the last way to honor her is to be consumed with bitterness and vengeance toward the person who took her life. It would be so much more of a living memorial to her to try to stop this kind of bloodshed, to stop gun violence, to stop this idea, this pernicious idea that one human being can just kill another. And I forgave for me because this saying that I love says that hating another person is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And I didn't want to give him that power over me. So I forgave him, but it was a forgiveness that said, I forgive you, and now I'm shaking you off my feet like dust, and I'm leaving you behind to God, and I'm going to never, ever think about you. And that's what I did for 20 years. I worked against gun violence. I worked against the death penalty. I'm proud to say we abolished the death penalty in my state of Illinois in the year 2011. And then I met this law professor named Mark Osler. Yes. Yeah. I met this law professor named Mark Osler, who, like me, is a kind of unusual opponent of the death penalty. He's a former prosecutor, former assistant U.S. attorney. And I met him at a conference at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. And he gave me a book. In the book was a chapter written by one of his teaching colleagues, a very distinguished author, Southern Baptist preacher, uh, university president named Randall O'Brien. And this chapter was about forgiveness. And I thought, oh, great, I'll read this. This will be good. And then I came to this one sentence, and I skidded to a halt. And that sentence was this. No Christian man or woman is relieved of the obligation to work to reconcile with those who've wronged them. And when I, let's just hear that again. No Christian man or woman, that means me, right? I call myself a Christian, is relieved of the obligation, meaning you have to, work to reconcile with those who have wronged them, meaning that it's my job to walk over hand outstretched to this young man who killed my family members. No remorse, no apology, and try to make peace with him. And I was so mad when I read that sentence that I called Mark Osler to yell at him for giving me this book with the sentence in it. And he said, you know, don't, don't yell at me, call Randall O'Brien. So I did. <laughs> I called him up, and I got the secretary to the president of Carson Newman University, and I left a message that Jean Bishop wanted to talk to him. And I thought, oh gosh, he'll never call me back, some strange woman calling out of the blue. But he did. 
And he was so gracious and loving when I told him the story I told all of you. And he said, you know, you sound like such a wonderful person, I'm sure, in time, in your spiritual journey, you will, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I said, what would this, you know, reconciling with this remorseless killer, what would this even look like? And he said it would look like Jesus on the cross. And I started to cry because I knew two things. One, that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was in the process of being killed by people who were not sorry. No one had apologized to him. They were taunting him. They were gambling for his clothes. And he was doing something I had never once done. And that was the second thing. I had never once prayed for this young man who killed my family members. Called myself a Christian and never ever prayed for him. And so that was the first way that I had to cross my divide. I had put up this very neat wall between me and him. On my side was good, innocent victim's family member. And on the other side of that divide was him, evil murderer. And I got to be in my nice space of righteousness while he could just suffer in prison. And what I learned from Randall O'Brien is that God breaks down that wall. God loves him every bit as much as God loves me. And I'm every bit as much of a sinner, as flawed and fallen as that young man was. And so I started to pray for him. And then I was challenged again by Mark Osler on you know, what, what I, how I kind of regarded the killer. I said to him, you know, well, I don't know. I mean, he's still remorseless, right? He's still, this is 23 years later, right? He's still remorseless. And Mark said, you don't know that. I said, how do you know that? You've never even spoken to him. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's right. So that night I wrote a letter to the, this young man in prison and I said, I forgave you a long time ago and I told everyone in the world but you. And that was wrong and I'm sorry. And I've waited all this time for you to apologize to me. I'm gonna go first. I'm sorry. And if you want me to come see you, I will. And so then I got to cross this other divide from having him be this mythical monster behind bars in prison to a man whose hand I shook when I went to visit him that first time at the prison to introduce myself, taking the hand that held the gun that pulled the trigger that fired into Nancy's pregnant stomach. I got to have this amazing encounter with him in that first visit where I got to do what we never got to do at sentencing because it was a mandatory sentence, and that is to give him my one-on-one -on -one victim impact statement of how what he did affected my mother, my father, everyone who loved and knew Nancy and Richard. And I got to learn things about Nancy's last moments from him that were so healing for me that I never would have learned without sitting down with him. I visit him still. I'm going to visit him actually about a week from now again. And it's taught me so much about what God wants of us, what he asks of us. And that is to break down that wall, to reach out to that divide, to be willing to see even in people who have done the worst, the face of the living God in them, to see their preciousness and their worth and to never, ever give up on anyone, as just as God has never, ever given up on any one of us. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. 
The encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. So I think everybody here was pretty moved. <laughs> so we have some questions, and um, I wanted to start with Jean. Um, why do so many, why do so few people visit people in prison? I mean, even for Catholics, it's a corporal work of mercy, and yet so few people visit prisoners. Because it's hard, right, Father? <laughs> I mean, first of all, we put most of our prisons out in the country. At least we do in my state of Illinois. They're not easy to get to for most people. It usually involves a couple of hour drive down a, a dusty road to some kind of small town. And then you get to the prison and you can't bring anything in with you. You go in with just your ID, you sign in. There's often a long wait. And I know all this because when I, I'm a, I left the corporate law job and became a public defender, when I go into a prison as a lawyer, I get to waltz to the front of the line, I get a private room, I can talk as long as I want. But when I go to visit the young man who killed my family members, I'm not going in as a lawyer. I'm not his lawyer. I go in just like any other, like a, a, a grandmother or a cousin or a friend, and I have to wait in that long line and I've gotten turned away for, because I'm, I'm wearing the wrong thing or you know something like that, or there's been a, a riot and, or something, and so there's a lockdown and you can't do the visit. And you go through the indignity sometimes of the guards not being so nice. You go through the search, and then you go through the long wait, and it's, it's a very bleak, noisy, smelly environment. It's hard. It's hard to take time out of your life to do that. And yet it's one of the holiest things, right, mm -hmm. that, that you can imagine because Jesus was a prisoner. And so even though it is hard, I always come away feeling like touched by the sacred. There's always this, this mystical thing that happens when you have that encounter with someone for whom everything else is stripped away and, and all that is left is, is that humanity. And, and the, the unconditional love of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I would just, it's hard to add to that, but I would say fear too. Uh, most people are like I was, terrified of the idea of going to prison. Uh, and uh, the media, the way people in prison are portrayed, it's, it's like they're monsters. And uh, it's, to see, it's when you see the humanity, it changes everything. But the hard part is getting past that initial fear. So in 2018, um, Pope Francis uh, basically um, came out with some new teaching on the death penalty, which um, basically said, you know, it's, we're against it. It's, it's not helpful. And so I wanted to know if you could comment, um, mm -hmm. well, Father George, said, on that. He said it was inadmissible. And, you know, obviously for the first 2,000 years of the church's existence, Death penalty was perfectly acceptable. It was culturally acceptable. And there was a need for it at one time because it was the only way people could defend the community against a dangerous person. 
they didn't have the kind of uh, tech, tech, uh, technology we have now with prisons to keep people safely removed from society. But we're not there anymore. We have the ability to keep people safely removed from society. So I think what Pope Francis, I don't think he was changing church teaching. He was expanding on a deeper teaching, which is the, the sacredness of human life, all human life, from the, from the moment of conception until the time of death. And not just human life of innocence, but human life of humans. And I think he was saying that it's therefore no longer necessary for us to put anybody to death because we don't need to protect society that way. And it's also not, it's inadmissible anyway because there's a deeper truth here that as Catholic Christians we're called to witness to the absolute sacredness of all human life and not put conditions on that. You know, there was a, a retired um, history professor at Northwestern University where I went to college and part of law school, Gary Wills. And he was asked once, you know, what is the, you know, what's the, the Christian view of the death penalty? What do we know about Jesus and the death penalty? And Gary Wills said, he stopped, and uh, what do we know about Jesus and executions? He stopped <laughs> one. If you go to John chapter 8, we all know this story. There's a woman caught in the act of adultery. Dead bang guilty, no question of innocence, caught in the act. Definitely a violation of the law of Moses. They bring her before Jesus, who's preaching at the temple. They throw her down in the dirt in front of him and say, this woman is you know, guilty of this act that you know, is subject to capital punishment. The law of Moses said we should stone such women. And what do you say? And we know what he said, right? But he's without sin among you, cast the first stone. And what I love about that is they didn't say, oh, adultery, not so bad. Why should we kill her for that? Or she might be innocent. He, he didn't say she didn't deserve to die. She said, we don't deserve to kill her. And I, th I think that's, that's part of the point, right, for us as Christians. Yeah. Okay, so um, another question. Um, Especially, um, you know, I've been in some prisons and I've seen the guards. Um, but is there a way to minister to the prison guards, especially, um, let's say, those involved in the death penalty? Well, it's something that's dear to my heart because I, I did my doctoral uh, dissertation on prison staff and stress. And what I learned was, uh, first of all, many of these men and women who work as correctional officers uh, are Catholic. Um, and uh, so we have, they're part of us. They're not, they're not, we, it's not like in the movies, the same way that we sort of caricature prisoners, we also caricature prison guards, and they portray them as these, you know, knuckle-dragging drag, Neanderthals who are brutal and sadistic. No, most of these are really good men and women who many have served our country in the military, and they're now in law enforcement, and they're dedicated, and they're professional. I like the, uh, the, the correctional officers I work with, and I do minister um, to them as much as possible. I have to kind of be careful because it's so tribal. I don't want to, you know, I, you can't, you have to, I have to do kind of discreetly the ministry, but it's, it's essential because they're in the same environment that the prisoners are in. They're being traumatized every day by being around people who are traumatized. They're seeing violence. They're under threat of violence themselves, and they take this home to them, to their families or communities. They have the highest uh, suicide rate of any people in law enforcement. Alcoholism, drug uh, addiction, family violence, divorce, those are all, it's like a plague in that, in that particular profession. 
So I think we have, we have a moral obligation to, to minister, to love them, and to care for them. And ultimately, and this is kind of under my thesis, was if we really want to change prisons, we don't change the prisoners, we change the people who run the prisons. And, in a way, and, by, and we change it by making the situation more humane for everybody involved in it. You know, just the things that we ask prison guards to do, right, because whenever an execution's carried out, it's carried out not in the name of the victim or the governor or the prosecutor. It's carried out in your name, in the name of the people of the state of California or the state of Illinois or wherever the execution is taking place. And yet we're outsourcing that to these guards who've been with these guys now for like 10, 15 years sometimes, and they have to take that person that they know is no longer a threat to society and walk him down a hall and strap him down on a gurney and take his life. I met a cab driver, I was in a cab in Virginia, and I found out that this cab driver had been a prison guard on Virginia's death row. And I asked him, like, did you ever preside over an execution? And he said, oh yes, once. And I never wanted to do it again. He said, you know, they give us 10 weeks off without pay, with pay, 10 weeks with pay after we participate in one of these executions because people are so traumatized. They need time to get over it. Um, you know, it's really interesting. When I first started visiting Nancy's murderer in prison, the prison guards didn't know who I was. But after a while, the word got out that I was coming there and, you know, based on my Christian faith to come and visit him. And they started asking me about that. And now I've been witnessing to all these prison guards just by the act of going and them finding out about it. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org slash donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Okay, so here's another question. Um, this is also, too, from you know, personal experience. Um, visiting prisoners, just visiting them, is really not enough. Um, when they get out of prison, they, they've been traumatized by being in prison and they need some sort of way to be restored back into the community. So how as we, as a community, help to restore um, these people, especially if they're going back to very rough situations? Yeah, that's such a great question because we are now in this period where we're realizing we've incarcerated way too many people in this country, this idea of mass incarceration, and we're trying to have people go home, and so we need to figure out how to help with reentry. I go to a Presbyterian church in Chicago, and we were kind of doing a self-examination and realizing that we're good about sending people into prisons to do things like tutoring and, you know, things like that, but we're really bad about welcoming returning citizens back from prison into the community. I heard once on the radio about a program that they were doing, I think it was here in New York, where there was a choir of people from the church out in the community and prisoners. And when the prisoners were being released, they could immediately come into this community and be in the choir now out of custody so that you have this whole kind of family of people that are there to, to know you and to, to help you. We need more things like that. We need to have 
things in place that will help people with the things they need most when they get out, which are housing, some kind of access to an income, some kind of social work help connecting you with the places that can get you the things you need to succeed. Well, I think your question speaks to the problem of the size of, of, the, of the issue. The criminal justice system in our country is so large and so broken. Um, it's an opportunity for all of us as Catholic Christians or as Christian Christians to, um, to find ways to minister and serve. And so one way to do it is to work with people when they come out of prison. But also, we can also work with the families of prisoners while they're still in prison to help them prepare. We can work with the victims of crime. Um, we can do all kinds of ministry. Uh, prison ministry without actually going into prison. So it's not for everybody to be in the prison. It's, there's, a, there's a huge opportunity, a great harvest of uh, souls waiting of, out there who are affected by the criminal justice system um, that we can minister to without actually setting foot inside a prison. And certainly um, educating ourselves and getting to know family members, victims of crime, uh, all these things are ways that we will then discover uh, better ways of helping people when they are leaving prison, because right now we're not really doing a very good job. And another question, I guess we could start with Jean on this one, because I think it's really very personal. Um, David, who was the person that um, murdered your sister and brother-in-law and their unborn child, he actually wrote to you and said, look, I did it. He did. And that was beautiful in a way that after those years he denied it, he finally admitted it. What about those people that are not remorseful at all for their crime and they're getting out? And how can we help them? I mean, as a society, I feel like our prisons are just all about punishment. You get in, you do your time, and you're out. Instead of really helping somebody to face what they did, what it did to their family, what it's done to society, and to really live a meaningful life when they get out. Yeah, we have this um, term restorative justice, and what that is is different than just punitive justice, where our object is just to punish you and you know, make you suffer as much as possible for what you did. The restorative justice is this idea that if you sit down with the victims of your crime, and or the victim's families in the case of a murder, um, that you might in that relationship learn something that will help you develop that remorse that I think you need to, to become truly rehabilitated. The restorative justice that I did was kind of my own seat of the pants made up, you know, one-on-one -on -one restorative justice. Um, but I know there are programs in places all over the country coming up more and more where it gives you an opportunity to have that kind of conversation. I can tell you that from what David said to me, the killer said to me once, you know, after hearing about Nancy, because I would talk about her all the time and what she was like and all these wonderful things she did. He said, the more I get to know you and your sister through you, the worse I feel about what I did. Okay, that's remorse. Because now it's not this faceless stranger that he shot in the dark is this nameless person, that he sees her as this fully fleshed out human being that no longer exists in this world because of what he did. The remorse is huge and deep and genuine, and it never would have come about without us having this conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Most of the guys I work with in prison do f show remorse and, and are really hungry for forgiveness. But there are some, especially some of the more sociopathic guys on death row. We have several serial killers. They don't have any remorse. Uh, but forgiveness doesn't depend on the remorse of the offender. Um, we forgive not for them, but for ourselves. So I, oftentimes forgiveness is about freeing ourselves from the other person's action, not necessarily requiring them to show forgiveness, to even show any kind of remorse or sorrow. It's wonderful when it happens and it's very healing, but it doesn't have to be there because again, our forgiveness doesn't depend on their remorse. It depends on our willingness to let go. And, and so I think that's, I see that operating a lot in the prison, but um, you know, the, the, um, the, the, um, the media kind of portrays all these prisoners as these, uh, you know, conscienceless, uh, you know, sociopaths. It, and they're not. Most of these are people who deeply regret what they did uh, and want to want forgiveness, but um, it's not always it's not always that black and white. Yeah, and sometimes it's a matter of time. I've actually written another book called Grace from the Rubble: Two Fathers' Road to Reconciliation After the Oklahoma City Bombing, and it's a story of Bud Welch, whose daughter Julie died in the Oklahoma City bombing at the age of 23 and Bill McVeigh, the father of Timothy McVeigh, the, the young man who set off that bomb and killed 168 people, including three pregnant women. Um, and Bud talks all the time about how people's remorse and things are, and, and coming you know, to a point where they can be reconciled is really a matter of time and healing and everybody's moving on their own timeline. Some people are able to do that right away. I mean, witness, the relatives of some of the victims of the Mother Emmanuel Baptist Church shooting in Charleston, where literally the next day they were telling this young man, Dylan Roof, we forgive you, we hope you find Christ. Um, to people like you know me that took, what, 23 years to finally reconcile with, with the killer. So it's, it, it's a matter of God working on the, the heart of, of every individual. So I think we're close to time, <laughs> but this was absolutely moving, and um, I have to say that it's only with Christ and, and the church that we can experience this, and I wanted to close with something from Father Jasani. Um, he says, in fact, within the church, nothing is extraneous, neither people nor things of itself. It demands an openness to all things, the capacity to become one, even with those who are hostile a sense of forgiveness all the way to an awareness of the victory over death. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.